Jesus today in Titus it says uh, our Savior Jesus Christ who came himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people and I remember going to Salt and Light the youth conference a few years ago in Tyler Texas and I don't remember who gave the sermon I think it might have been David Piles but he talked about how as the church dwindles we should rejoice because it's a purification of the church. And so when you're in a small group like this, a more intimate setting, it doesn't get better. You know, we could be standing here with a thousand people. You could have Billy Graham in front of you with a stadium full of folks. But it wouldn't be better than this. I wanted to talk about Jesus. Uh, yesterday, I was helping someone move and I missed the last stair on a step and I rolled my ankle real bad and the very first person I called out to was oh Lord Jesus and he works in our hearts that way that we'd call out to him he works in our hearts as individuals but he has also worked in the world on our society on our civilization you can see the effects of Jesus everywhere everywhere the greatest composer who ever lived, Johann Sebastian Bach. He wrote Soli Deo Gloria, for God's glory only, on everything that he did, on every single piece that he composed. All the great cathedrals of Europe, all inspired by Jesus Christ, the greatest architecture of all time. It's not even really close. You've got Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel. You've got... uh, our favorite movies, the greatest, the great movies. I mean, even the ones that that people will say, "Oh, you know, um, this is you know, wicked of the world." Um, whether it's Marvel movies or or, or Harry Potter or, or uh, Star Wars, if it resonates with you, it resonates because at the core of that story is something that Jesus did for us, which is He sacrificed Himself for us. He lived, he was born, he lived, he died, and he, was ro- he rose again for us. And so all the great culture, all the great architecture, all the great book literature, Dostoevsky was a great Christian, all the great art, architecture, everything is an effect of Jesus Christ. There's a theological concept, I might have mentioned this to some of you before, someone told me, they said that we, we count from the year of Christ's birth, the Christian era, or... Uh, Anno Domini, right? Year of our Lord. Because time started with Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word. And the Word is Christ. And here we are, we're talking about the Word, Jesus Christ, and we're reading from the Word, the Scripture, and it's an incredibly high honor. It's a, it's a fearful thing to have the Word in front of you. But I want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about, I want to, I want to paint the picture of the man, if I can. So we've talked a little bit about some of the effects, but I want to talk about his birth, his life, and his death. Now, the first thing about his birth that's important is that he came in fulfillment of prophecies. He was born in Bethlehem, he was called a Nazarene, and he was raised in Egypt. He came up out of Egypt. So all the prophecies come true. 
He was born poor in a manger to parents who were common, who were hunted. At the time that he was born, Herod sent his people out to kill all the children under two, and that's why they had to go to Egypt. Just a common person, hunted, poor, afflicted, just like any of us. There's this painting, I forget who painted it, but it's a painting of Christ. Uh, you know, people like to argue about what, what he looked like. They like to say, you know, he's one ethnicity or another or whatever. Uh, but in this one, he's, he's a little boy and he's got auburn hair and he's in his father's work shop, his carpentry studio, and his father's kneeling down to teach him something. Uh, and the boy is just a little boy. Uh, beautiful thing. He lived a life like any of these kids. Just a happy child having fun. Playing games. Learning from his dad. His, his trade. Trade that gets passed on from generation to generation. Something that we've lost apparently by the way. Uh, in Mark, Mark gets right to it. Mark, we, the first thing that Jesus does is he goes and he gets baptized. He sets an example for us. Then he's tempted in the wilderness. He goes out and he fasts for 40 days. Not, not, that is sound, to most of us, that would sound like an incredible feat, fasting for 40 days. But we know that it's possible. Not just because Christ has done it, but other people have also fasted for 40 days. That wasn't the remarkable part of the fast. The remarkable part of the fast was being tempted by Satan himself with the highest possible temptations. The temptation to rule all things in the world. And he resisted the temptation because he was spotless and without sin. So he was tempted, he was tried, he was taught. Obviously, he picked up his trade from his father. We know that uh, when they, uh, when, when he was sort of a younger uh, boy, they're leaving Jerusalem, and he kind of stayed behind to learn from the elders and ask questions. And then, after he was tempted and he was tried. He went and he healed. He healed and he healed and he healed. And anyone who touched him was filled with his virtue. Let's read, let's read about that. In Luke chapter 6 it says, He came down with them and stood in the plain and the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. So they came to hear him to be taught, and they came to be healed. They were vexed with unclean spirits. This is verse 18 if you want to read along. It's in Luke chapter 6. They were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed, and the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. This is the light. He is the light and the life of men. He was the light in the beginning of time. He's the light in this room, he's the light through all of our lives. He's the light that guides us over the river, as the hymn says. And he taught, and he taught, and he taught, and he taught. He spoke as one who had authority. I'm going to read, I'm going to read through the rest of Luke 6. I'm not going to comment on it too much because it is pretty self-explanatory, I think, actually. If you, if you listen to this, if you read it, and you know, read the King James, if, if you have trouble with the language, go read other translations. I'm not going to hold that against you. 
But this seems to me about as clear as it gets. He says, blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. In the like manner did their fathers under the prophets. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good unto them which hate you. Bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto them that smiteth thee on the one cheek offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again." I'm going to read that one again because that's, to me, I think, incredibly important for the Christian. It's a very practical thing that you can apply in your life every day. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and to him that taketh away, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, that what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies and do good and lend hoping for nothing again and your reward shall be great and ye shall be the children of the highest for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, and shaken together. Running over shall men give unto your bosom for with the same measure that ye meet with all it shall be measured to you again and he spoke this parable can the blind lead the blind shall they both fall into the ditch the disciple is not above his master but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master and why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye. I, either how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye, thou hypocrite, cast out the beam first in thine own eye, and then shalt thou clearly see to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. For good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, Neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit, for every tree is known by his own fruit. For the thorns of men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. 
For of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to a man whom he is like. He is like a man which built a house and digged a deep and dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and it could not shake it for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like that man without a foundation, which built a house upon the, the earth, which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of the house was great. Okay. I wanted to read that all that to you because that is what Jesus taught. That is what the Lord himself on earth in the flesh taught. He taught us to do things. He taught us to, to, to love one another. He taught us to radically love one another such that if someone stole from you or someone borrowed from you, that you wouldn't ask for it back. Or if anyone asked you of anything, you would just give it to them. It was a radical, radical teaching. It was not, it was not mundane. It was not this banal thing that is that you know, modern Christianity has turned into where you simply, you know, if you're in some denominations, you just show up, you go through the rituals and then you get to say, Oh, I definitely am going to heaven. Or if you're in another denomination, you get to be, uh, here listening at the sermon, you get to show up, you get to get dressed up and then you get to go and you get to live your regular life full of sin, full of wickedness. And it's just, it's just a comfort to you. It's not a changing of the heart. The whole point from the very beginning of the sermon has been that the effects are to be seen, right? The effects in the art and the culture, in your lives, in your heart, when you fall and you cry, Jesus, help me. That's an effect. It should have an effect. The life of Christ was not without an effect. I'm going to go over to chapter 20 here. When John the Baptist, Christ's cousin, the man who baptized the guy was in prison, he sent people to, to Christ and the men were come unto him and they said John the Baptist has sent us saying art thou he that should come or look we for another so he's in jail about to be beheaded by the, one of the most wicked people that was alive at the time the cousin of Christ who leapt in, in, in the womb for joy who knows he, he knows in his heart that Jesus is the Messiah but he is despairing, and so he sends his followers to see, can you confirm that you are the one that we've all been waiting for? And in the same hour, in the same hour that they went to Jesus, he's curing infirmities and plagues and casting out evil spirits that the, and giving the blind sight. And so he says unto them, because it's so obvious that this man is to Christ, that it's so obvious to everyone that can see, Romans says that everyone knows that there is a God. It's just the rebellious heart of man that, that says no. It's, it's the rebellious heart of man that says no, I get to decide if there's a God. He's saying it's so obvious you should see, you can see. Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard, how the blind see and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised. And so the, and to the poor, the gospel is preached and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. 
And then he had to die. He had to die. He came to die. To redeem us for our sins, which are many. And we're going to read about that from Matthew chapter 26. And I'm sorry I'm taking so much time, Elder Boyd. It's just... You want the whole picture, right? You want the whole picture. You want to understand, you know, he lived a whole life, 33 years. It's hard to imagine or condense 33 years down into... Not only that, it's not just the 33 years. It's the entirety of time. He's eternal. There's no way to condense it down. But, but, we've, we're given the word. We're given the word. We're supposed... I mean, he's the logos, right? We're supposed to live in communion with this thing, okay? It, it, we're supposed to live in relationship with the word. Our culture does not take words seriously, Am I right? Does our culture take words seriously? Do we not just make slang up constantly? I participate in this. I get it. We make stuff up constantly. We use words all willy-nilly. They don't mean anything to us anymore. And we claim to have some sort of relationship to the word. But we don't. We don't if we don't take this seriously. If we don't, if we don't look at what the word's pointing to, right? what the scripture's pointing to, which is the logos. The logos... It's not just, I mean, we translate it here as the word, but it's not just the word. It is the thing which makes sense in relationship to the spirit, which doesn't make any sense to us because we're men. And the father, which kind of makes sense because we are familiar with fathers and we're familiar with creation. We're familiar with provision. But the logos is this thing that makes sense, the, the word that makes sense. I mean, we know the son. We know the son. He came to be man. We know him as well as we can know any part of the Trinity. And probably better, because he, he did come as a man. So we're in Matthew chapter 26. And this is how he had to die. This is how he had to die. This is 26, verse 59. The chief priests, the chief priests, the religious people... Okay, the religious leaders, this is so, I mean, the whole thing, if you read, if you read about Christ, if you skip everything else and you just read about Christ, it makes clear what Christianity is all about. Because it's about this man coming to die for our sins in opposition to all this nonsense that they had before. The nonsense of men. The chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witness. They looked for a lie against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. They couldn't find anything, not even a lie. Though came many false, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. And finally, at last, they found two false witnesses, two people that were willing to lie, and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose, which he can, obviously, he can... He's God. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. So, in this climactic hour of his life, when he's being falsely, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's funny because he did say that he would tear down the temple. So what is exactly, the, the false witness is just the fact that these people are liars and want to kill the guy. And how does he respond? How does he respond? He holds his peace and they say, by God, tell us whether thou be the Christ, the son of God. And he can't lie. So he says, Jesus saith unto them, thou hast said, nevertheless, I say unto you, 
Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He couldn't lie. He is God. He sits on the right hand of the Father. And they hated him for it. They hated him for it. Because the powers that be, the institutions that be, they reject the truth. They reject the truth because the only way they can stay in power, the only way they can control the people they control is by rejecting the truth, rejecting the logos, rejecting the thing that makes sense, that has, that has, I mean, the whole point from the very beginning, right? He went to the poor, he went to the meek, he went to the lowly. It had to make sense to them, right? It didn't have to make sense to the highly educated people, the intellectuals of the time, the scribes, the lawyers, the people who, 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 who could rationalize anything. Remember, when the serpent goes to Eve in the, garden, in the Garden of Eden, the serpent rationalizes with Eve. It doesn't take a genius to understand. It takes the poor and the meek and the lowly. Because it just makes sense. And he could not lie. He said, you'll see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. If we go to the next chapter, 27. When he's being questioned by the leader of the Gentiles, Pilate, he say, Pilate saith unto him, or saith unto them, At this point, Pilate's talking to the the Hebrews, and he's saying, Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They've decided at this point they want to save this this revolutionary Barabbas, this murderer. What shall I do with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all said unto him, Let him be crucified. They all said unto him, all of them, the mob, the mob, right? The many, okay? It's, it's, I'm so glad we have a small congregation today because if there were many here, this wouldn't make sense, right? It wouldn't make sense because when there is many, it, it can't be, right? It can't be. Because the many call for him to be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When, he, when the governor says, give me a reason, they say, we don't need a reason. We just want the spectacle of a crucifixion. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. It's funny because people hate Pilate. Like, today we hate Pilate, but I look at Pilate and I see probably the least offensive person in the whole in the whole thing outside of Christ himself. I mean he's the only person that goes to bat over and over for this guy and says I won't be a part of it even though he is a part of it. Then answered all the people and said his blood is on us. His blood is on us and on our children. So they knew what they were doing. Then released the Then released he Barabbas unto them. And when he scourged Jesus, he delivered them to to be crucified. So scourging is when you get beat with a whip that's got like metal beads at the end of it. Um, In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, that seems to be a pretty accurate representation of what that would have been like. In, In other words, incredibly painful, worse than anything any of us have ever experienced. And that's just the beginning, because then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered him, unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him. They humiliated him. They put, him, they put on him a scarlet robe. Scarlet being the color. We just heard from Elder Bradley this morning. The, the scarlet line. 
this goes through scripture, this idea that um, it is obvious where Christ is. And he stripped him, put on a scarlet robe, humiliating him. When they had platted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, mocking him, humiliating him. They spit on him. They took the reed. They smote him on the head. This man, remember the little boy that I described earlier, the little boy with the auburn hair in his father's shop, growing up, did nothing but teach and heal his whole entire life. Now he's being humiliated, stripped of his clothes, spit on, scourged, beat with a reed. They mock him, they take the robe off him, they put his own clothes on him, lead him away to crucify him. They just had an intermission just to humiliate the guy. It was like the soldier, everyone had to get their peace, right? Right? Pilate had to have his time. Herod had to have his time. The Roman soldiers had to have their time. Everyone had to get a chunk. Just to let us know that none of us are innocent, right? There's none of us who are, who are, who are without sin. And they came out and they found a man of Cyrene. Simon was his name. Cy- Cyrene, Simon... This is how we know Jesus wasn't racist because the guy was black who helped him carry the the cross. Simon, by the name, they compelled him to bear the cross. And when they were come under the place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of the skull, they gave him vinegar to drink. If you ever drank vinegar, it's not very good. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him. So they nailed his hands into a piece of wood. And they parted, and his feet, and they parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, more prophecies being fulfilled. They sat down, they watched him there. They sat down, and they watched him hanging from the cross. And they set up over his head his accusation, written, This is Jesus, King of the Jews, more mockery. How can we demean this man more? How can we demean this innocent person more? Then there were two thieves crucified with him. So he's crucified with thieves, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled, wagging their heads, saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocked him with the scribes and the elders, saying, He saved others, but himself he cannot save. He saved others, but himself he cannot save. The, they mocked him, the chief priest. And, and this is the thing. I mean, this is the thing. This is like the, the hard thing to say and probably the hard thing to hear. But that, doesn't, that hasn't really changed. The chief priests still mock him. Okay, All the false religions of the world that proclaim his name to make you know, the, the prosperity gospel or whatever you want. Anyone that's using his name for their own benefit, for the, for the filthy lucre, they are the ones that are spitting on him and saying, saying, Oh, save yourself. Why don't you tear down this temple that we've built? All these false religions. All these false religions that mock the logos, that mock the thing that makes sense. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God. 
I'm almost done here. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast in the same, the, the, cast the same in his teeth. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land unto the ninth hour. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, crying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. So those who have pity on him are few. They are few. Those who recognize that this man was more than a man are few. The rest said, Let be. Let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. So that's how he died. It's one of the most brutal scenes in history that I'm aware of. And I just want to close out with the resurrection because it's the most important part. But I'm not going to read the story of the resurrection because we all know it so well. I mean, we know it, right? Found by women. They went to look for him in the tomb and he wasn't there. Because he had risen again. The thing is that we all know the story, right? Like we know that he rises again, that he lives again. What we need is we need to be encouraged. And this is what Paul says. He says, Brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also are ye saved, if you keep it in memory what I've preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and and he rose again and on the third day according to scriptures. And he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. And after that, he was seen of five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present day. Some are fallen asleep. But after that, he was seen of James and then all of the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am not the least of the apostles. For I am the least of the apostles that I that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And he goes on to say that if the resurrection isn't real, then our faith is in vain, right? If Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith also vain? Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he raised not up. So if so be that the dead rise not, for if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised. And if Christ not be not raised, your faith is in vain. Ye are yet in your sins. So that's where we would be if he did not rise again. If all those hundreds of people that saw him risen again were lying. If the scripture is false. If everything we think is true is false. If, I mean, there's this thing called Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is probably the most likely. 
The simplest explanation is that those people are all telling the truth because most of them were martyred for it. It's an insane idea. It is absolutely bewilderingly insane to say that, yeah, the 12 disciples, 11 of whom were martyred, they saw him rise again and they went like it's insane to say that they made all that up because to make it all up and then to die for the lie. That, I mean, that's a preposterously complex conspiracy. It's so, like, we talk about the moon landing being fake, and it's like, obviously the moon landing's not fake. It would have required hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people to collaborate in a massive lie over decades. This is bigger than that. We're talking about thousands of people who who were healed by the person who saw the person while he lived, who experienced the miracles, who knows that he is, who, who, that he was God. Many of them martyred for it. You know, none of the NASA scientists were, were, you know, stoned to death for proclaiming that they, we went to the moon, right? 11 out of the 12 of the 12 apostles were martyred. It's true. It's obviously true to anyone with ears to hear and eyes to see. I hope that you could uh, you could picture in your mind Jesus today. I hope that he was here with us. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much, Lord, for bringing us here together today, Lord. Thank you for um, bringing us here safely, Lord. Thank you for the image of your son, Jesus Christ, that we can look to, Lord, that, that if you will it, we can be conformed to that image, Lord. Lord, thank you for his life, Lord, a life full of love and teaching and healing. Thank you for all of the effects of his time here, Lord, for all the gifts that you bestow upon us as a result of his mercy and the result of his grace, Lord. Lord, forgive us for our sins. Forgive those that persecuted him. Forgive those for of those forgive those who persecute him today, Lord. Forgive us for not being profitable servants, Lord. Forgive us where we fail, Lord. Bring us into closer communion with you, Lord. Help us to understand you better, Lord. Thank you so much for Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Psalm 146. The title of the psalm is referred to as Hallelujah. I pray the Lord will bless us to get something out of these Ten verses. Psalm 146. It starts out and says, Praise ye the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. He directs our attention. And he starts out on a real positive note. That we are to just simply praise the Lord. A lot of things would cause us to be distracted from praising God. A lot of hindrances. A lot of discouragements. He addresses here in just a minute. One thing that would cause us to not praise God. And then he tells us why we should praise God. He says, praise ye the Lord. We praise the Lord when we sing hymns. 
We praise the Lord when we read His Word. We praise the Lord when we talk to Him in prayer. We praise the Lord when we're teaching our children, when we're worshiping in a group setting, in a congregation. We attempt to praise the Lord. He says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, will I praise the Lord. He's basically saying here that he's committing to a life of praising God. The psalmist titles it, Hallelujah. While I live, will I praise the Lord. He says, I will sing praises unto my God while I have any being. I think that's that's something to consider for just a minute. He says, as long as I live, I'm going to praise God. That's my greatest desire. That's my greatest aim. And then he says, as long as I have any being. Well, your soul is part of your being. One of these days, we're going to lay these bodies down. But our soul is going to continue on. And our soul is able, even in heaven itself, to somehow praise God. So we're still able to praise God when we end up in heaven. But then he tells us, and he mentions in verses 3 and 4, he tells us something that would hinder us from our praise. And it also emphasizes that we will be discouraged if we consider this course. He says, put not your trust in princes. Basically, he's saying right here that we don't put our trust in leaders. We're supposed to pray for leaders. We're supposed to ask God to intervene and direct leaders. But for the Christian, the child of God, that's not where we put our trust. We don't put our trust in leaders. It doesn't matter if you think it's a good leader or a bad leader. They're human beings. They're sinners. The very best leaders are still but sinners. Their influence that they have only lasts for a short season. Their plans and their schemes and their programs last for a short time. He says, don't put your trust in princesses. Don't put your trust in leaders. You put your trust in God. And he says, nor do you put your trust in the Son of Man. He says, don't put your trust in the Son of Man. Meaning anyone that's born of man or woman. That's not where we put our trust. Our trust, whether it be in good times or in bad times, is in one person, the one that Brother Danny has spoken to us about, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know how not to be easily tossed to and fro. You want to know how not to be double-minded. You want to know how not to be experiencing the deep, deep lows. You do it by simply putting your trust in God. God will not ever disappoint you. 
He'll never forsake you. God will never lead you the wrong way. You'll never be disappointed as long as you put your trust in God. That's where we put it. And he says right here, he says, don't put your trust in princes. Don't put your trust in the son of man. And he says, by the way, in whom there is no help. You might think you're being helped for a season. But our only help is in God. And he says, he said, he sort of describes this individual. He says, don't put your trust in princes. Don't put your trust in the son of man. He says his breath, talking about the son of man or talking about leaders or talking about princes. He says his breath goeth forth and he returneth to the earth. And the very and that the very day his thoughts perish. Sounds like that even his influence is pretty short lived. He says his breath goeth forth. He returneth to his earth. And in that very day, his thoughts perish. It ends really, really quickly. I heard one commentator say that the possessions of a wealthy individual are all wrapped up at the end of his life. In a little burial plot about two and a half feet wide and six feet long. And that's the extent of it right there. He says, don't put your trust in feeble man. Don't put your trust in the son of man. Don't put your trust in those that as soon as God calls them home, their last breath is the last influence they have. He says, his breath goeth forth, it returneth to the earth. Even his thoughts perish that very day. And then he starts out verse 5. Now, if you want to go and read Psalm 104, verse 33, it it, it emphasizes even more about putting trust in God. And, And Psalm 62 says that David will trust in the Lord at all times. And Psalm 118 says it's better to trust in the Lord than to put your trust in man or in princes or have confidence in men of the earth. And then he says in verse 5, and I like this. I, I like this. He starts out and he says, happy. He simply starts out and says, happy. You know, I want to be happy and I want to be around happy people and I want you to be happy. And did you know that I believe that the scriptures teach us that we ought to be a happy people? I believe we ought to be a joyful people. I believe we ought to be rejoicing in the Lord. Now, there's some of us that it takes a repeat of the verse. We're taught, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Some of us, it takes it a little bit more and we have to hear it more times. But we ought to be a happy people and rejoicing people in the Lord. And if we're not happy, if we're not rejoicing in the Lord, then there's something wrong. And it's not with the Lord. It's usually with us, but it's not with the Lord. Now, if we're putting our trust in the Lord, and that means all of our trust. You know, we sing the song when we walk with the Lord. We, uh, 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 253. Let me. This is this describes trusting in the Lord right here. 
This describes trusting in the Lord. This song mentions eight different aspects of our life. And it addresses the aspects in which we should trust in God. Take my life. That's our entire life. All of our life. And let it be consecrated unto thee. Made holy unto God. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. And then it gets really tough. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Lord, I give my life to thee. Thine forever more shall be. Lord, I give my life to thee. Thine forevermore to be. You want to be a happy Christian? Give your life to the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about you're giving your life to the Lord to gain eternal heaven. God has your life and He has it in His hands. But we have the choice each and every day of our life. Are we going to hold back part of it ourselves? Are we going to desire to give it to God to be used of Him? When I found the old Baptist through grandparents, it was a great blessing. I'll always be very, very thankful for the influence of grandparents and great-grandparents. Made a great impression on my life. When I turned 15, I was able to start going to church and I found, I found a home among the people and it has suited my case for a long time. And it's been a great blessing. I had a lot of catch-up to do. Went to a singing school and a few months after I had followed in baptism and Brother Sonny Lawrence was there and he was teaching the singing school. And there was a congregation of 30 or 40 young folks and I was up toward the front and he said, Brother Stephen, would you read? And he told me the verse out of Colossians. I didn't even know Colossians was in the Bible. I started looking for it. I couldn't find it in the New Testament. I couldn't find it in the Old Testament. I thought this Bible doesn't have Colossians in it. I had a whole lot of catch up to do. But I tell you, if you commit your life when you're young to the Lord, if you say, Lord, take my life, I want to be a follower of Christ. I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you follow the Lord, you'll be happy. You'll be happy. If you're not happy, it's possible that there's some of that that we're trying to hold back. You can go read all those eight points in the song. 
And it may be your will. It may be your time. It may be what your hands do or what your feet does or what's on your mind. But if we're not happy, there's probably an area of our life that we've not given to the Lord. Now the Lord doesn't need us, but we need Him. He says happy. He says happy is the man. Happy is the one, happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help. Who is our help? Who is our strength? Who are we looking to? Are we looking to all of this mess that's going on around us? I'm, I'm telling you, I, I gladly turned off the TV. Every time I turn it on, I get more depressed than, than, than before I turned it on. I don't need to add to my stress or my depression or anything like that. But I can be assured that if I'm thinking about the Lord, I'm going to be happy. He says, happy is the man, happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help. That's our help. I can't give you much encouragement in any other direction. But I sure can in the Lord. Happy is he who hath the God of Jacob for his help. His help. Whose hope is in the Lord his God. And then he just steps back and, and he just begins to declare why we should trust in God. Brother Danny emphasized all of the many of the qualities of Christ. And here the psalmist is saying, here is why we trust in God and not in ourselves. And here's why he's worthy of our trust. He says, the God, he says, we're to hope and trust in God. He is our strength. He is our help. And he says, by the way, he made the heavens. So when you ever begin to doubt if God is capable, we can look up and we can see that God made the heaven. And he says, by the way, he also made the earth. He says, and he made the sea and he made all that is therein is. And he says, which keepeth truth forever. Where are you going to hear about truth? There's probably not a newspaper that you can read today. There's probably not a website or an internet site that you can go to and find truth. But you can find truth all the time, 100% of the time in God's word. You won't ever be discouraged. Now, you may not like what you read sometimes. There may be something you read that condemns you or corrects you or instructs you. And you may think, I wish that kind of wasn't in there. But you're going to find truth in God's word. That's where you'll find it. He says, by the way, he made the heavens, he made the earth, he made the sea, he made all that is therein. And he says, he keepeth truth forever. And he says, he also executeth judgment for the oppressed. What's he saying right there? He said, there's a day of reconciliation. There's a day of reckoning coming. Those that are oppressed... Those that are followers of Christ, those that are rebuked, that are rejected, those that are made light of. He says, God is the one that executes judgment on the oppressed. He also says it's God that giveth food to the hungry. 
He says, it's the Lord that looseneth the prisoner. It's the Lord that openeth the eyes of the blind. And he's talking about those that are prisons and in bondage of sin. He's talking about those that are blind to the things and, 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 and blessings and gifts of God. He says, the Lord openeth the eyes of the blind. I love Isaiah chapter 40. He says, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Speak ye comfortably unto Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished and that she hath received double of the Lord's pardon for their sins. He's saying right here that the Lord openeth the eyes of the blind. He says, the Lord raiseth them that are bowed down. The Lord loveth the righteous. Not those that are self-righteous. Not those that feel like that they've got it all figured out. Not those that feel like that they don't make any mistakes or any sins along the way. I knew an individual that I worked with one time and I actually had this individual tell me it was a lady in her 50s that she finally felt like she had reached the place in life that she was no longer a sinner. Do you know what? That was a sin in itself. To think that we're not a sinner anymore. Because we're taught in the scriptures that the psalmist says there's none good. No, not one. That we've all gone astray. The only time that we're going to be delivered from that is not when we reach 50 years of age. But it's going to be when the Lord takes us home. Our biggest problem that we've got in this life is not your sin. It's our own sins. Our own individual sins. The psalmist says, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raiseth them that are bowed down. The Lord loveth the righteous, not the self-righteous, but those that have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Lord preserveth the strangers. He relieveth the fatherless and the widow. What does it describe? Isn't it describing a compassionate God? Isn't it describing a God that, that feels our infirmities? That cares for us? That loves us? That, feels, that, that cares for us when we can't help ourselves? Which that's most of the time. That there's a God that loves us, that holds us up. He says the Lord is the one. He says the Lord preserveth the strangers. He relieveth the fatherless. And widow. I I think it's over and over in the New Testament and in the Old. The fatherless and the widow are described. And God tells us that we should have compassion upon the fatherless. God tells us that we should have compassion upon the widow. But even if we don't have compassion upon them, God does. God does. He says, but he turneth the way of the wicked upside down. The wicked may be shaking their fist at God. The wicked may feel like that they're able to oppress the Christian. They may feel like that they can squelch it out. But they can't. 
because of God. It says, God turneth the way of the wicked upside down. Remember the story of Haman who created the gallows for Mordecai. And it ended up that God through his sovereignty ended up that Haman was hanged on his own gallows. You see, the Lord is seeing what's happening. The Lord knows what happens. And the Lord is the one that gets justification in the end. Now look what he says. Verse 10. The Lord shall reign forever. Even thy God, O Zion. Unto all generations. And then he starts out just, he ends up just the way that he started out. He says, don't put your trust in men. Don't put your trust in leaders. Don't put your trust in princes. Don't put your trust in men that might have big titles. But he says, you trust in God. And he says, and here's why you trust in God. He created everything. Even you and I. And he knows all about us. And he knows all about our needs. And he ends up the psalm the same way he started it out. Hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. Just not many areas that are real encouraging in this life. Not many things that bring about real happiness in this life. Oftentimes, the life of the Christian is hard. It's difficult. There's many setbacks along the way. The life of the Christian experiences many struggles. But even in the midst of all of that, we can be encouraged and we can be happy in the Lord, knowing that the Lord is our strength. The Lord is our help. The Lord is our comforter. That's where we need to be reminded over and over and over again to put our trust, not in men, but in the Lord. May God bless you.